In some people, the urge to survive is so strong, they will drag any number of others down with them. Is it our fault that nature has made us this way? Is it so wrong to want to live? Welcome to Creepycast. The stone in your shoe you can never remove no matter how hard you shake because... Because the stone is you. My name is Pather Agillian and I too am a source of irritation. I'm the author of The Call and The Invasion and I rejoice when you buy my books for friends or even request them at your library. Today's story, A Single Breath, was never intended for print. It was always meant for performance in front of a live audience, something which first occurred at Worldcon in London in 2014 and again in 2018 at LuxCon in Luxembourg. Will it work in this format? Let's find out. But beware. If your children are listening, they will be exposed to at least one use of the F-bomb. Boom. Let's give it a go. Hold on to your hats. The problem with these stories is that I'm supposedly here to frighten you. But we all know that's never going to work. I'm just a country lad, and in Ireland... When you move from the country to the city, they call you a bog trotter. I mean, what is that? In England, the bog is a slang word. It means toilet. It's where you go when you've got the trots. And bog roll is what you use to wipe your arses with after, presumably because you're too snobby to use nettles like the rest of us. But bog is not an English word originally. Bog is a Gaelic term, an Irish term that means soft. It's what happens when it rains on a piece of land for 20,000 years until the trees all die and fall to their knees. But they don't rot. Nothing rots in a bog. There's not enough free oxygen, you see. The bog, the greedy, grasping bog, holds on and on. Nothing is ever allowed to properly die. Hence the fact that people in Connemara were once able to build the roofs of their houses out of oak trees that were tens of thousands of years old, stained brown by the bog, as everything is, and twisted into beautiful, tortured shapes. In the great land of innovation that I come from, we Irish have sought to make use of our bogs and their powers of preservation. Before there were fridges, we stored butter there, knowing that if we got peckish in a few hundred years, we would still be able to put it on our bread. When the Vikings or the English were rampaging around the countryside, People would hide their treasures in a bog pool, always thinking they would get them back. But, like everything else, the bog 
has kept them for itself. But the really clever Irish people, the smartest of the smart, realised that bogs were the ideal place to murder somebody. In ancient times, when a king was so crap he couldn't even make the sunshine for the crops, well, people starved then, didn't they? The very people he was supposed to be looking after. And mere killing was far too good for a scum like that. The whole tribe would grab the king and drag him far out into the bog. Oh, he had let them down. They stabbed him repeatedly, but not enough to kill him. They bashed him on the back of his head, and everybody got to take their turn. Then, the next king, somebody who would do a much better job of controlling the weather, would tie a thin cord of leather around the old king's throat and draw it tight until the man's battered legs were kicking until his whole body was screaming, screaming out for air. It would be so easy to finish him off. But rude. You have to leave something for the bog, don't you? So they would push him down into the bog pool that was to be his resting place, struggling all the way down into the muck. Never to fully die, never to decompose, an eternity of suffocation, begging for even one breath. Not all of these sacrifices to the bog were trapped forever. If any of you are in Dublin, you should visit the National Museum. You'll see several of those so-called bog bodies that we rescued over the years, if you can call being sliced in half by a giant turf-harvesting machine a rescue. But we haven't, by any stretch, found them all. Twenty years ago, in July, in the extreme northwest of Ireland where I grew up, a couple went off to a wedding in a country church. Now, I'm calling them a couple, Tommy and Maraid. But they had broken up a few days earlier with much acrimony, and neither of them was willing to stay away from the wedding or even to give up the room they had booked with no couch and only one bed. That was going to be fun. The last humiliation was a series of nasty coincidences that forced them into travelling together. So, off they drove across the bog, fuming and angry and late for the ceremony. The roads out there do not forgive fast driving. The bog tries to swallow any paved surface, so parts of it are always sinking even as other bits hold firm. Maraid was driving, and she should have known better but being the principal bridesmaid, she could not be late. Bounce, bounce, bounce went the car. The noise stopped her having to listen to Tommy. Bounce, bounce, bounce. And eventually, 
no more than ten minutes away from the church. Something scraped hard against the road and the vehicle shuddered to a stop. They could see the top of the bell tower from where they'd landed, no more than a few hundred metres across the bog. The land dipped down, and then up came a hill of firmer ground with most of the church beyond it. Tommy got out first in his father's thick velvet suit and just started walking. Have any of you ever walked on a bog? In the distance it looks just like a field, but a field is what it is not. You would never see your cows again if you let them wander, and there isn't a tree in sight. In summer, if you're lucky, if it's been dry a few weeks, crossing the bog is like stepping out onto a mattress. That's what the ground feels like. Your footsteps vibrate beneath you, and most people have a bit of a laugh making the whole area ripple by jumping up and down as though on a trampoline. But while this day, the day of the wedding, was the hottest in ten years, it was following on from a week of a more traditional Irish summer, the sort that would have given Noah a bit of a fright, that would have had him running for his carpentry tools and desperately pairing up his animals. Tommy was sweating already. There wasn't a single cloud to protect him, and believe me, when you're Irish, when your name is Gallagher or Dunleavy and you've got skin the colour of high-quality toilet paper, the sun is not your friend. And it was worse out on the bog. The air was steaming, thick and soupy, every breath more likely to choke you than satisfy, like wearing a hot cloth over your mouth. Maraid followed him down. Weedy little shite, she was thinking. She would have to go barefoot, but what choice did she have? The road here looped around a mountain before getting to the church, and Cathy, the bride, would strangle her if she got there late. And so, off they went, still furious with each other panting and choking on the thick, still air. They stepped over miracles as they walked, such as the honeydew plant that trapped flies in its sticky leaves to suck the life out of them, and sphagnum moss, greedy enough to drink down twenty times its own weight in water. Neither Tommy nor Maraid saw any of this, or spoke as much as one word to each other, until Tommy finally broke the silence. Oh, fuck! He had stepped in the wrong place and left one of his big clunking shoes in the muck. They were down in the dip by then, with the slope of the hill still two hundred metres away. Five minutes' walk on a footpath, but not here. Clearly, if they advanced, nothing but a deadly swamp awaited them. You can probably guess what Tommy said next. 
he jabbed a finger at Maraid. This is your fault. And Maraid found the words of an angry reply getting stuck in her throat because, you know what? For once, the nasty little turd was right. It was her fault. She had let Tommy break her heart. She had given him this power. I was drunk, he'd said when it all came out. That other girl didn't mean nothing. And then he got angry. Why are you always bringing it up? Why can't you just let it go? Because, Tommy, she had cried. It hurts, that's why. The bells of the church rang out then and Maraid felt tears stinging the corner of her eyes. The mascara would start running any minute now. There were already streaks of sweat in her fake tan. And then she saw it. A man's footprint, no more than a metre away. Tommy, did you? But no, this was a bare foot, larger by far than Tommy's. Somebody else had left it, maybe even another guest at the wedding. And maybe, if whoever it was happened to be local, he might actually know where he was going. What are you doing? asked Tommy. She could feel him staring as she placed her own foot directly over the print of the stranger. She tested her weight and found the ground to be firm. I know about bogs, she said. I'll find us a way across. Don't talk shite, Maraid. You're from the town, same as me. But she had already found more footprints zigzagging slowly around the bottom of the dip. And every one she tested held her weight. And soon enough, Tommy was following on behind her, carrying his clumpy shoes. Tommy watched her back. She looked ridiculous now, with the whole bottom of her violet bridesmaid's dress brown up to the knees. But she had found a way across, and he had no idea how she was doing it. Every time he tried moving away from her footsteps, he risked sinking to his knees as the bog tried to steal his filthy socks from him. The path took them away a little from where they needed to go. But sooner or later, they were going to intersect the hill and get out. It could not come soon enough. The sweat was stinging his eyes now. His entire shirt was sopping with it. He would look like a fool when they sneaked in the back of the church. And the only good part of it was that Maraid was going to look worse. After a few minutes, the bells stopped ringing and the only sounds were the squelch of their footprints and their ragged breathing of the damp air. Then, Maraid spun around and shouted at Tommy, Just stop it! Stop making that sound! I've had enough of your messin'! What? he asked. What sound? But she was right. Something wheezed nearby, or, or bubbled, maybe. It's not me making that sound. To their right, a large hummock rose out of the surface of the bog, a mound made entirely of generations of moss, 
a natural wonder that had taken centuries to reach its present size. Behind it, something rattled and hissed, something that waited between them and the main slope of the hill. It's just a pool, Maraid. Bubbling gases or something like that. The sun had reached its zenith. Of course it had. The wedding had been due to start at noon. It was happening now. Happening in the absence of the main bridesmaid. Very faintly, the opening bars of Here comes the bride, here comes the bride. Oh, this is shite, Maraid shouted. Shite! Once again, she took off. The ground still held her well enough. But something was wrong. The rattling had been growing louder. If it really were coming from a pool, then it shouldn't be able to move, should it? Maraid, Tommy called after her retreating back. He had a sudden urge to apologise to her. She was too good for him. That was always the problem. The other girl, that other girl, was just his way of defending himself for when she finally left him. And now she had anyway. Maraid, stop! I don't think you should... And then the words caught in his throat as though at that instant somebody had grabbed him tightly around the neck. He saw, he thought he saw, a lump of wood. That's what it looked like. Six feet tall, brown and gnarled, except except it was moving, stepping out carefully from behind the hummock. This was not wood. This was clearly a man of sorts. Wisps of red hair stood up on one side of his brown-skinned head. His long legs wobbled, almost as though they couldn't support his naked body, as though he were boneless. But by far the most disturbing thing about the creature was his neck. A garrote of ancient leather clung there and had been tightened with such ferocity that the flesh curved inwards at that point. It must have caused him great distress because one of his boneless hands kept plucking at it. The other stretched out towards Maraid in supplication. And all the while there came the sound, the horrible sound of his attempted breathing, the hissing heaving, wheezing agony of a tortured man, desperate for air, but never achieving more than a trickle of it, the tiniest trickle. Maraid didn't scream. It was worse than that. She dropped the shoes. Then she turned and ran. Go, Tommy, she called as she tried to pass him along the narrow trail of safe ground. Instead, they collided and fell together into the muck. Tommy tried to stagger to his feet, but a bog pool swallowed his left leg and would not let him go. Meanwhile, 
the brown man had reached Mairead's side. He stretched down and grabbed her by the shoulders. She shrieked, but then... Then she saw that his blue eyes were pleading. It's obvious that he was in distress. It's clear that he was just heartbeats away from death. How can I help? she asked. And the brown man kissed her. Hey, Tommy shouted, still sinking a little. Hey, she's not into that. And she wasn't. Her lips didn't shift so much as a millimetre, but her whole body started convulsing her legs jerking away at the knees, her arms pushing and pushing, sinking into leathery flesh, and her blows had no more effect than they would have had on the bog itself. Tommy was screaming. He didn't know what. The bog man, the creature, the sacrifice, sucked and sucked and sucked. His chest rose and fell, but Maraid's only seemed to shrink until, all of a sudden, her ribcage caved inwards like a squashed old plastic bottle. Snap, snap, snap. She fell to the surface of the bog and all of Tommy's screams jammed up in a lump in his throat. The bogman had changed. His skin colour was paler by a little. But it was his breathing that took all of Tommy's attention. So clean, so clear, so normal, he filled himself with air as a single joyful tear crept from the corner of his tanned eyelids. You killed, said Tommy. You, you. It seemed as if an hour passed. With the two of them like that, the young man sobbing, the bog man smiling into the sun. But the change came soon enough. There was a look of confusion on the bog man's features. One brown hand stole up towards the garrote on his neck. A crackle crept into the breathing that a moment before had run so clear. Teeth ground together in ancient distress and in moments the wheezing had returned as bad as it had ever been before, and that pitiful, tortured gaze turned to fix on Tommy. The bogman was pleading. He was desperate for a breath of air, and he bent down for a kiss. A great thrashing followed like the sound of a giant fly trapped in a sundew, legs kicking up water, every limb beating and waving, desperate for life. But at last, peace returned, and for a little while longer, the bogman was free to breathe once more. There was another man, back in Kerry in the 1930s. This is a true story, but don't worry, it's really short. But this guy, he went out for a drink the night before his wedding. Everybody saw him, hale and laughing, and more than a little unwise. 
but nobody expected his absence at the ceremony the next day. He got cold feet, they said to the abandoned bride. You'll never see him again. They were wrong. Fifty years later, they found a man's body in the bog, so perfectly preserved that an old woman in the village identified him as her lost fiancé. Drunk from the pub, he must have taken a shortcut across the bog to get home. I always imagine that in a hundred years from now, or two hundred, they will find Tommy and Maraid. And they too were off to a wedding. And they too will look immaculately young. And above all, grateful. Grateful to get out of the bog and back up into the air. The end. Well, there we go. There's another one. And the first one, well, for those who are listening in 2019, this was the first one of 2019. Um... These podcasts, this is season two, and these podcasts are not going to be as frequent as they were before. I was managing about one a week for season one. It looks like it's going to be one every fortnight from now on. So sorry about that. But, you know, we'll still have fun, I hope, and a few chills and, you know, maybe even a few laughs eventually. So thank you very much for listening. If you feel like leaving me a review somewhere, I would be very grateful for it. If you feel like buying copies of The Call or The Invasion for someone you love or someone else, feel free. I'd be grateful for that too. Thanks a lot. Until next time, take care.